Not any, okay. <laughs> All right, let me ask you to take your Bibles. Turn with us once again to Hebrews in chapter 1. I want to spend just a few minutes introducing the book, kind of get us oriented uh, to our study. And I want to begin by asking the question, what is the book of Hebrews? Is it an epistle? Is it a theological treatise? It's kind of both. Uh, I think the best explanation is that it's a sermon. Hebrews is an exposition of what the Old Testament teaches us about Messiah and how it finds its fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it is a theological treatise, but it also is presented as an epistle with applications to our hearts and our lives. The author explains the Old Testament scriptures and he shows us how they point to Jesus Christ. He shows how the entire sacrificial system is fulfilled in Jesus. But he does make very direct applications to our hearts, to our lives, to what we believe. And in, at the end, he actually sends, even sends personal greetings like you'd find in any other epistle. Now, I want to address just a few questions before we dive into the text this morning. First of all, the big question that many people ask is, who wrote it? And uh, if you were here last week, Pastor Mark said, I'm not sure if Jamie's going to address the question of whether or not Paul wrote it. I was sitting up there because we had been exposed to COVID, and I didn't want to expose anybody, but I was sitting up there with my mask going, no. And he interpreted that to mean he's not going to talk about who wrote it. No, my, my no was, I don't think Paul wrote it. Uh, many assume that, and, and, and you'll read many arguments in favor of Pauline authorship, and I've read those arguments, and, and quite frankly, I don't find them convincing. Whether it's the style of writing, you find the, the, the reasoning that's there, uh, it, it doesn't sound Pauline, not only to me, but to many very uh, learned biblical scholars. But the strongest argument, if you turn to Hebrews chapter 2, it's, it's on the same page in my Bible, uh, look at Hebrews 2 verses 3 and 4. The writer asks the questions, uh, I'm in... First, Second Timothy, for some reason. We'll do a whole lot better if I'm in the right place. He, he, he writes in verse 3, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So, why would you say that influences your thought. Well, because this writer says the, 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 the word, the, the gospel was given to us through the apostles and we, first person, received it from those who heard. Now, in Galatians chapter 1, Paul writes, I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And Paul reiterates that emphasis several times to make it very clear he was not taught the gospel by the other apostles. His apostleship is as legitimate as that of the other uh, 12, including Matthias, who was added on after Judas committed suicide, because he received that gospel as a direct revelation from Jesus Christ. So if he says that over and over in his epistles, how then could he write, we received it from the apostles? To me, that, I find that is a very compelling argument that Paul did not write those words. So I don't believe that he wrote the epistle to the Hebrews. So you ask, well, who did write it? And there are a lot of theories. Some have suggested Luke or Barnabas or Clement of Rome or Apollos. Martin Luther guessed it could be Apollos back in the 1500s. And later in the 1500s, John Calvin was convinced it was not Paul uh, he preferred maybe Luke or Clement, but he really didn't know. And the reality is nobody knows. Uh, in recent days, many uh, New Testament scholars are leaning more toward the idea that maybe Apollos did in fact write the book of Hebrews. Now, that's an intriguing uh, suggestion. We don't have anything else written by Apollos, so we can't compare it like we can Paul's writings. But when we read what Luke says about Apollos in the book of Acts, please listen. He says in Acts 18, now a Jew... And I'm convinced that the writer was Jewish because of his thorough understanding of the Hebrew or the Jewish sacrificial system. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man. Well, that certainly seems to fit whoever wrote 
the book of Hebrews. He was eloquent. He was competent in the Scriptures without question. Whoever wrote Hebrews had to know the Scriptures well. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. He was instructed. He received it from others. He powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the Scriptures that the Christ or the Messiah was Jesus. Well, that's the theme of the book of Hebrews. Now, the Old Testament references in Hebrews, if you, if you really dive into the language carefully, you'll find that it's not generally taken primarily from the Hebrew original Scriptures. It's from the, what's called the Septuagint, which was the, uh, the Greek translation of the Hebrew. Uh, it it's, it's lines up with the Septuagint. And the fact that Apollos was from Alexandria makes it more likely that that is the Old Testament that he knew best. He was most familiar with the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. So there are a lot of reasons why I find the suggestion that Apollos wrote it very intriguing. But at the end of the day, it really doesn't, it doesn't, we don't know. But it doesn't matter. We don't know who wrote the book of Ruth either, do we? Or Judges. Or a number of the Psalms. We, we don't know. We do know with great confidence they were inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. And that's what really, truly matters. So the answer to that question, who wrote it, is we're not sure. Who inspired it? We absolutely know it was God by His Spirit. Well, when was it written? That question is a little easier to answer because there's a very strong indication that in this book that the temple worship was still going on, and that's significant. He speaks of the the priests carrying out their priestly service day after day after day, and, and bulls and goats being sacrificed constantly. Well, the Roman army came in and utterly laid waste to Jerusalem in 70 AD. That's a well-attested fact of history. The temple was completely demolished, and the sacrificial system ceased, and it has never been resumed. 70 AD, which means Hebrews almost absolutely could not have been written, unless the writer was ignoring that, could not have been written before that. And so the general opinion is it was written somewhere in the mid-60s AD. He mentions toward the end of the book, Timothy being released from prison. So it would be a little bit later. It wouldn't be early in the church, uh, uh, the time of the first uh, early church. It would be a little bit later, and 65 A.D. would be uh, 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 reasonable. Uh, Next question arises, who was Hebrews written to? Who uh, who was addressed? Well, uh, generally in an epistle, Paul would say, Paul to the believers in Rome or the church at Ephesus or whatever. There is no location or church or group identified. We assume from the contents that it is primarily Jewish believers that are being addressed here. Some believe he's writing to Jews in Jerusalem. Some believe he's writing to Jews who are suffering persecution in Rome or in its whereabouts. Because late in the book, uh, the writer says, those who have come from Italy send greetings. And it sounds like maybe some of your people who came out from you and are now where I am, whoever the writer is, came from Italy, which is where you are, they send you greetings. That may be an accurate interpretation of that, but we really don't know. But the point is, it was most likely a Jewish Christian audience reading this, reading this, uh, this, this letter. And one of the writers uh, that I read had this somewhat humorous statement. He said, the book of Hebrews was written by a Hebrew author to Hebrew Christians telling these Hebrews to stop acting like the Old Testament Hebrews because the Old Testament Hebrews were so quick to turn aside. They were fickle. They did not endure. And persevering and enduring is one of the main themes, one of the calls in the book of Hebrews. Stand fast, endure, do not turn back from following after Christ. And that's one of the reasons, that's the reason why there's such an emphasis on the supremacy of Jesus Christ. He is worth whatever difficulties you may encounter in your Christian life. The call of discipleship, Jesus said, whoever would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And apparently, from what we read in the text, we see that, or we believe that Jewish Christians had denied themselves, they had taken up that cross, they'd followed Jesus, and now they were finding that cross very heavy to bear. Some were asking the question, is it really worth it? 
and it was increasingly difficult to persevere, and some possibly were even tempted to turn back. And so we can hear that question arising, is Jesus worth all of the heartache and hardship uh, that we're enduring to be Christians among a hostile culture, whether it's the, in Rome where, where Jews, where, where, where Christians were uh, being persecuted uh, under Nero uh, or, or under uh, 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 the other emperor at the time, or was it Jews in Jerusalem who were being persecuted by fellow Jews? But there was a temptation from what we can see to turn back. And the question, is Jesus worth the pain and the hardship that it brings? The answer to the book of Hebrews is a resounding yes. Jesus is worth everything because of who he is and because of what he's done and what he continues to do for us to the very present day, what ultimately he will do for us. Jesus is worth everything. Three things I want us to see from the text that we read this morning. First of all, Jesus is the fulfillment of the revelation of God, the fulfillment of the revelation of God. Secondly, Jesus is equal to the Father in power and in glory. And then thirdly, Jesus is superior to the angels in relation to the Father. So these three things are what we're going to unpack as we look at this text this morning. First of all, Jesus is the fulfillment of the revelation of God. Long ago at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. God has delighted himself from the very beginning to reveal himself to man. You remember in the Old Testament prophets, these humorous uh, depictions of idols where they have mouths but they can't speak, and they have hands but they can't act, and feet but they can't move, and those who make them are like them or will be like them. But God speaks, and all that he says is true, and he has been pleased to reveal himself. God is a communicating God, spoken to us or to our fathers many times, many ways, through many different prophets. We find this this contrast between verse 1 and verse 2. Long ago in the Old Testament, God spoke to our forefathers by the prophets. But now in these last days, these days between the, the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus, when the Scriptures speak of the last days, it's speaking of this time between the two comings of Christ. It doesn't mean that Jesus' return is right around the corner, that you can mark it on your calendar. We've been in the last days since the first century A.D., But in these last days, he's spoken to us, not through lots of different men and lots of different means. He's spoken to us by his sons. The prophets in the Old Testament received a message of redemption rooted in the Messiah. And God fulfills that promise of redemption through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the Old Testament, God spoke through many, many different prophets. And over long periods of time, Moses was the first to write Scripture. And that was in about 1440, something like that, B.C. For another thousand years, the last prophecy, uh, last prophet, uh, prophet, prophet was written in about 400 B.C. So for about a, a thousand years, God was speaking through many, many different men, many, many different means, many, many different ways. But in these last days, God has uniquely spoken through his one and only son, a very specific time, specific place, a very specific person, and a very specific way. These Old Testament prophets were revelation receivers. God spoke to a particular prophet, and he repeated that message. Jesus is not merely a revelation receiver. Jesus is the revelation of God. He is a revelation revealer. He is God the Son, the God-man. He reveals the Father to us. Not just what God says, but who God is. He is the fulfillment of the prophecies we find in the Old Testament. Throughout the Old Testament period, the prophets were, uh, were, were, were declaring, here's the covenant. And here is how, how Israel has broken that covenant. It's, it, it's like a covenant lawsuit in many cases. 
And here are the consequences. But here's the promised redeemer who will come and, and bring redemption, who will bring salvation, who will reestablish his covenant and reestablish his kingdom and the Davidic throne that will never, ever be vacated. And so that was the message of so many of the prophets and so much of the prophecy. And then the Lord Jesus comes. And he fulfills those promises. Remember the, the day that he rose from the grave, he, he, he appeared to two disciples, not of the 12, but two of his followers on the road to Emmaus. They didn't know who he was. And they were lamenting the fact that all their hopes had, and dreams had died when Jesus was crucified. But they're troubled because now they're hearing that some women have said they saw Jesus rise from the dead, his body was gone, and they didn't know what to make of it all. And they were greatly troubled. And Jesus, you remember, says, oh, foolish ones, you're so slow to believe what is in the Scriptures. And so it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he shows how all of what Scripture says terminates and points to him. And at the end of that narrative, when they finally realized their guest was none other than Jesus, they said, were our hearts not burning within us as he spoke? Jesus spoke. And Hebrews proceeds to reveal to us who Jesus is. And as we read in these verses here, Jesus, because of who he is, because he's what he's done, he is worth everything. There's a contrast, as I point out, but there's also an important continuity. This, there's the same message. The Old Testament prophets pointing toward Messiah. Jesus, the new fulfillment or the fulfillment of those promises is that Messiah. We have the complete message. All the pieces of the puzzle have now been put together. Hebrews speaks of the temple that the Old Testament describes and the law of God and all of the sacrifices and, and shows how all of that is just a shadow of what was to come. Jesus is the fulfillment of those types and those shadows. It all finds its fulfillment in him. He has come. He's the reality. <clears throat> and so there's this inherent question running throughout this text. Why would anyone want to abandon the reality and go back to the shadow? It makes no sense. So Jesus, first of all, he is the revelation or the fulfillment of the revelation of God. But secondly, Jesus is equal to the Father, both in his power and in his glory. Look in the middle of verse 2 and verse 3. It speaks of the Son whom he appointed, the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So the writer, the author, I, I've been tempted to, to, to just say Apollos, knowing that we don't really know that's him, rather than the clumsy, the writer, or the author all the time. But anyhow, we read here that he is describing the excellence of Jesus Christ, the wonder and the glory of who he is. And he makes seven glorious statements about our Lord. First of all, he affirms Jesus' power and his glory. He says he was appointed the heir of all things. Now, we talked about this Wednesday night in prayer meeting as we discussed this text in preparation for tonight, for this morning. Uh, and the question was raised, why does it say he was appointed if he is God from all eternity? He is God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. So how was it possible for him to be appointed heir of all things? Does this somehow call into question what the scriptures teach about Jesus being eternal, about his eternal authority and his eternal deity. Of course, it cannot. It does not. So, but there is mystery in the scriptures surrounding God, the Godhead, the Trinity, three persons and one God. We can formulate it. We can speak of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons and one God. We can speak of the Lord Jesus as uh, uh, the only Son of God, is the Lord, or the only mediator between God and man is the Lord Jesus Christ, who, being the eternal Son of God, became man and so was and continues to be both God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. Now you're saying, did you make that up? No, it's in the catechism. It's actually in the back of our hymnal. Uh, who is the only mediator of God's, God's elect? The Lord Jesus Christ, eternally God, 
At the incarnation, he became man, and for all time, he is God and man, two distinct natures, one person forever. And so, the writer of the Hebrews is not speaking of the eternal Son of God inheriting something that was already his, but rather as the God-man, God who became flesh. Never before had man, any man, held such authority. Never before could anyone say, this man is the heir of all things. But Jesus, the God-man, inherits that as the reward of his obedience to the Lord at Calvary. This concept takes us back to Psalm chapter 2, verse 8. Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm. Remember the heathen raging and taking counsel against the Lord and his anointed. But in verse 8, the father says to the son, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. He inherits. He has made the heir of all things, which reflects what Jesus himself declared in the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now, from all eternity, he already had authority in heaven and earth. That is the God-man. It is given to him in a new and unique way. The second thing we see here is that Jesus not only is the heir of all things, we read it is through Jesus that the world was created. That's an amazing statement to think about. Genesis 1.1, we all know it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, the writer of the Hebrews says it was through Jesus, it was by him that the heavens and the earth were created. Now, that is as clear an affirmation of deity as you can imagine. If God created the heaven and the earth and it was all created by Jesus, then Jesus must be God. Turn with me to John chapter 1. It shouldn't surprise us that we read these words here because we see it several other times in the Scriptures. John 1 uh, very powerfully makes that declaration. John 1 verse 1. John says, In the beginning was the Word, the Lagos, that final revelation. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God, deity of Christ, right out of the chute. The Word was God. And he was in the beginning with God, face to face with God, literally, which means there's more than one person in the Godhead. So now we're finding the deity of Christ, we're finding the multiplicity of persons in the Trinity. He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that has or that was made. Jesus is the agent of creation. God created everything. How did he do it? He created it through the work of his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God the Son. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 1 if you would. Paul affirms the very same thing in Colossians 1. After Romans and 1 and 2 Corinthians, there's Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. If you have a pew Bible, it's page 983. But Colossians 1, verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. The image doesn't mean a a copy. It means he is in essence, the image, the invisible God. And the firstborn of all creation, that doesn't mean he was created. He is the preeminent one over all creation is what that means. But for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and all things in him, all things hold together. Now, the Jehovah's Witnesses deny the deity of Christ. They believe Jesus was a created being. And so, in their New World Translation, which I don't recommend you pick up, it's not going to bite you, but it will mislead you, they insert the word other. In him, all other things were created. Because if it was true that by him all things were created, then Jesus himself could not be a created being, and that blows their whole theological system out of the water. So, they just modify the scriptures to fit their false teaching. But in Jesus, who is the eternal God-man from the very beginning, he was with God, he was God. By him, all things were created. 
things visible, invisible, in heaven, on earth, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things created through him and for him. Tom Schreiner in his commentary says, the one who was put death in Jerusalem on a cross a few decades earlier is now praised as the one who created the world. Think about that. He was put to death, which means he's mortal. He's flesh and blood. And yet here we find just a few decades, maybe three decades later, reading, he created everything. Again in verse 18 in John, or excuse me, um, here we find God the Son. Jesus is the divine agent of creation. There's nothing in existence that exists apart from his direct agency or his direct working. But not only is he the author of creation, he's the author of the new creation. He made cleansing, purification for our sins. I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. But he's the author of creation. He's the author of new creation. But thirdly, he is the radiance of the glory of God. Now, John affirms the very same thing in his introduction in chapter 1, verse 14. He says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus came to reveal to the radiance of the glory of God. Again, verse 18 in John 1, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. I don't know if you're familiar with the word exegesis. We take the, the text of Scripture and we exegete it. In other words, we, we draw out what is there. Eisegesis means we read into the text something that's not there. Exegesis, we draw out what is there. The Greek word in John, in John 1.18 is, no one has seen the Father, but God the Son has exegeted him. He's made him known. A little freebie. He's the radiance of the glory of God in, uh, in his humanity. While he lived here on the earth, Jesus was uniquely revealing the glory of God. In his high priestly prayer, he says to the Father, John 17, 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. He brought glory to his Father. But he doesn't merely reflect the glory of God. You and I are called to reflect the glory of God. But he radiates the glory of God. It's his by right because he is God the Son. He is the God-man. And so, back in John 17, that high priestly prayer, verse 5, he says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. But the indication we find in Hebrews is it's an even greater glory. Because the glory Jesus had before the world existed was simply glorious beyond our imagination, but as the second person of the Trinity. Now it's the God-man who has accomplished and fulfilled all that he revealed he would do. And it's a greater, even greater glory if that were possible. So we, we have Jesus in that prayer referring to that pre-incarnate glory that he shared with his Father. But while he lived on this earth, that glory was veiled for the most part. You remember the Mount of Transfiguration, that veil came down. And James and Peter and John saw Jesus and it tells us the radiance of Christ was overwhelming. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became white as light. And when God spoke, they were terrified and they fell on their faces. You remember Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah sees the glory of God. And he's undone. But it tells us the angels who had never sinned are veiling, they're covering their faces from the glory of God. It was overwhelming to the angels, the sinless angels are covering their faces, shielding themselves from the glory of God. And in John chapter 12, John tells us that Isaiah saw Jesus' glory and spoke of him, referring to that very text. So what the angels were shielding their faces from, the glory of the pre-incarnate Son of God, Jesus came to reveal the glory of his Father. He is the radiance of a glory of God. But we read even further, he's also the exact imprint of the nature of the Father. And this statement is connected to what we just read. He is the radiance of the glory of God and 
the exact imprint of his nature. Now, what do you think this word imprint means? Kids, have you ever taken an ink stamp and you, you stamp the ink and you, you make a stamp on the paper? Have you ever done that? You make an imprint of what's on the stamp. If you have a, a coin, a quarter, let's say, and you look at the quarter, uh, on the head's side is the head of George Washington. Now, I'm not telling you that coin is George Washington. I'm telling you that coin is an exact imprint of the press that pressed down and made that coin. It's a, it's a, it's a perfect reflection of what's in the original press or the original uh, uh, machine. And so in the same way, Jesus is a, a, an exact reflection or an exact expression of the nature of his father. This stamp of the Father's nature is born by the Son, the Lord Jesus. He reveals the very nature of God. All of God's attributes are reflected, are, 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 uh, are revealed in the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The New City Catechism says it this way. It, uh, speaking of God, it says, God is a creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. Sounds kind of like what Hebrews 1 has just said about Jesus, doesn't it? God is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. He is eternal, infinite, and unchangeable in his power and perfection, goodness and glory, wisdom, justice, and truth. And everything in that statement that is true of the Father is also true of the Son. He's the exact imprint of the nature of the divine perfections of God. Jesus bears the identity of divinity. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He could say to Philip in the upper room when Philip says, show us the Father and it'll be enough. And, and Jesus says, Philip, have I been with you so long? You don't know who I am? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. It's not if you've heard me, you've heard about the Father. The prophets could say that. If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. I am the exact imprint of his nature. Colossians 1.15 that we read, he is the image of the invisible God. In other words, the, the physical manifestation the firstborn of all creation. Richard Brooks in the Wellwin Commentary says, all divine perfections are beheld in Jesus. All the divine glory shines forth in him. So Jesus didn't come just to tell us about God. He came to show us who God is, to reveal us or reveal God to us, to bear the very image of God before watching eyes. So the author of Hebrews is building this argument. He, he's, he's, he's showing us the, the supremacy of the glory of Jesus. If you look, in, if you have an ESV Bible, the, uh, the, uh, the, the heading that is, it's not inspired, it's, it was written by the editors of the ESV, says the supremacy of God's Son. But that's the argument that he is building at this point in the book. So no matter what the cost may be of following Jesus, he is worth everything because of who he is, but also because of what he's done and what he continues to do. He goes further and he says, Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now that's another amazing statement about the providence of God, first of all. Not only did God create everything, he sustains everything. He's not like that, uh, that, that clockmaker the deists speak of. God is the divine clockmaker. He builds a clock with intricate, uh, intricate uh, workings, and then he winds it up, and then he sets it on the shelf and lets the laws of nature take over. But he doesn't get involved in the inner workings of the world he created. That is called deism, and it's heresy. God is intimately involved in every aspect of his creation. He sustains everything that is. Hebrews, or excuse me, Ephesians 1.11 says he works all things according to his, the counsel of his will. He personally, he sovereignly oversees every aspect of his creation. He is no absent landlord. He is the sovereign creator and sustainer of the universe. Now, that statement in itself is amazing. But Hebrews 1 goes beyond that and says this truth is applied to the Lord Jesus. He, Jesus, upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now, children, how did God create the world? 
What did he do to make the world? He did. Did he go down to Home Depot and buy a bunch of lumber and a bunch of other supplies? No, Home Depot didn't exist yet, right? He spoke. He said, let there be light, and there was light. Let there be birds, and there were birds. Let there be sea, there was sea. Let there be land, there was land. God spoke the world into existence. And we read here that by that very same powerful word, by the word of his power, he upholds or sustains his creation. He sustains all things by the word of his power. Colossians 1, 16 and 17, we wrote, read a moment ago. In him all things were created, or by him all things were created. In heaven and earth, visible and invisible, thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and through him, for him and for him. And he's before all things, and then this last statement Paul makes is, and in him all things hold together. And if at any moment Jesus chose not to uphold all things by the word of his power, if he withdrew that word, it would all come apart. During his earthly ministry, he demonstrated the word of his power when he was in the boat and there was a ferocious storm. And these, these, these experienced professional fishermen who knew that particular Sea of Galilee were afraid for their lives. Lord, don't you care if we perish? And he stood up. He woke up. And he stood up and he said, peace, be still. The word of his power. And the storm submitted. He could still the storm with his word. He can uphold all things. That was a very small manifestation of the power of his word. He uh, sustains all things. The entire universe by the very same powerful word. But the next thing that we read here is that he made purification for sins. And this really is the heart of the book of Hebrews. From all eternity, Jesus is God. Jesus created the world and everything in it. He sustains the world by the word of his power. He's the radiance of the glory of God. He manifests all the divine perfections of God now in human flesh. These are all ongoing realities. He created, but now he's sustaining. He's upholding. He's manifesting the glory of God and the character of God. But in the fullness of time, at a particular time, in a particular place, the particular man, the Lord Jesus, he took human flesh to himself. He fully kept the law of God, his own law that we had broken. And because of that, his entire creation was placed under a curse, and yet he sustains it. But he kept the law. He perfectly fulfilled righteousness. Now, now, now was Jesus righteous before he ever took human flesh? And the answer is, of course. He's God. That's one of his attributes. He's, he's God. But the righteousness of God could not save sinful men. We needed a perfect human righteousness. And that's why Jesus learned obedience through what was suffered. He achieved a perfect human righteousness so that we who are guilty can be cleansed and forgiven and counted as righteous. Jesus received the penalty, the punishment for our sins, and we receive the reward, reward for his obedience. Our sins are imputed or credited to him, and he's treated the way we are deserved. And his righteousness is credited or imputed to us, and we're rewarded or blessed the way he deserves. That is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not something you or I can earn or ever deserve. It is all done by our Savior, the Lord Jesus it was a once and for all completed event. He died on the cross and paid the penalty for our sin because he had none of his own. He bore the curse in our place. And we find this teased out, explained out through the book of Hebrews that, that uh, these priestly sacrifices spelled out in the old covenant, they were continuing day after day. But the reality was they could never make purification for sins. Hebrews 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But it goes on and tells us in Hebrews 10, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. This, this old covenant sacrificial system involving sacrificing bulls and goats and sheep and, 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 uh, and, and, and lambs, rams, and so forth, only Jesus Christ could serve as the mediator between God and men. Only Jesus Christ could bear our, truly bear our sins away, and he did it in a once-for-all 
sacrifice when he died on the cross. Only he is qualified to make purification for our sins. And it's the work he accomplished once and for all when he died on Calvary. And as he gave up his spirit, you remember these powerful words. He cried out in a loud voice, it is finished. That word means the debt has been fully paid. And there's nothing left for you or me to pay. All of divine justice has been fully satisfied. He has taken the wrath of God upon himself, and he has drunk it, drunk the, the cup of God's wrath to the very bottom. And there's nothing left for you or me if you're trusting in Christ. However great the work of creation might be, however great his work of sovereign sustaining and providence might be, the work of new creation is even more great and more glorious. The work of purification for sins, the work of salvation is his greatest work. And once he has accomplished that, we read that he sat down at the right hand by the majesty on high. This is where the the writer has been leading us. It's like he's leading us on this tour up this majestic mountain peak and we get to the summit we get to the top and he says and now Jesus has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high this crucified resurrected Lord has now been exalted to glory in heaven but it's very significant the way it's expressed here it says he sat down it indicates that his redeeming work has been completed and there's a definite sequence after he had made purification for sins, then he sat down. It is finished. The work is done. There's no more purification that needs to be made. No more saving that needs to be accomplished. No more payment to be done. No more righteousness to be achieved. All that left is for the Spirit to draw his people to himself. But the idea that Jesus sat down, it's very interesting imagery here. Because in the Old Testament, it's very detailed about what the priests were supposed to do, and the temple furniture, the tabernacle furniture, was very explicitly spelled out. And you know what didn't exist in all the tabernacle furniture? It wasn't a chair. There was no throne. There was no place to sit. Because the work of the priest was never done, because purifications for sins was never fully accomplished. In fact, it wasn't accomplished at all because all the blood of bulls and goats can never take away our sins. But Jesus, once and for all, made purification and he sat down. The work was done. That's a powerful statement about the supremacy of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it tells us further that he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He takes the position of supreme honor. That takes us back to what the psalmist says in Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. It takes us to where Jesus and the great commission of Matthew 28 says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now, you might say, no, wait a minute. If Jesus was eternally God, the Son, didn't he already have all power and authority? Well, yes, but here he's being depicted as the God-man. And as God and man, two, person, two natures, one person, all authority is given to him. He sits down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Never before had any man had such privilege or such honor reserved only for the one the son the god man jesus christ exalted to the highest place philippians 2 tells us that after he became obedient even to the point of death on the cross god exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name above every name that in the name of jesus every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that jesus christ is lord to the glory of god the father let me ask you this question is that the joyful confession of your heart? Jesus is Lord. Jesus is my Lord. Because every person in this room one day will confess that. And you will either confess it with great joy because he's your Lord. Or you'll confess it with great sorrow and regret because you will know he is the Lord. And yet you did not embrace him. 
Hebrews 2 asks the question, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? We're not going there yet, but, but, but the writer is saying, look how wondrous, how glorious, how supreme Jesus is above everyone and everything and all of existence. Sits down, co-equal in glory and power with the Father in heaven. In Revelation 19, verse 6, it says, Jesus is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. All authority. So he's the fulfillment of the revelation of God. He is uh, equal to the Father in power and in glory. And then finally, he is superior to the angels in relation to the Father. Why do we find this emphasis on angels in the book of Revelation? Some suggest that angel worship was a, a, a feature in that first century Judaism, and some Christians were tempted to go back. Now, I say that can't be, because the reason that the Jews rejected Jesus as God is because they were fiercely monotheistic. They would not worship any but God the Father alone. So the idea that they would worship angels that they know are created beings, there's no claim that they are worthy of our worship, that makes no sense. But angels were the Means of God revealing himself many, many times. Many times, many places. Often by angels, angelic visitors would come to the prophets and reveal to them what God wanted men to know. They were bearers of revelation. And so what an angel had to say was very important. An angel appeared to Zechariah in Luke chapter 1 and said, Zechariah, you and your wife Elizabeth in your old age, you're going to have a a child. And he's going to be that forerunner to the Messiah, John the Baptist. In Luke 1, later, the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary and prophesied to her that she was going to have a son even though she'd never known any man. As a virgin, she would become pregnant because God the Spirit would overshadow her. And she would give birth to the Messiah, the Son, the Lord Jesus. And then in Matthew chapter 1, we read that the angel appeared to Joseph. He found out that his wife was pregnant, or his fiancée, excuse me, she was was pregnant, and he knew that he wasn't responsible for that. And so he was reluctant, in fact, afraid to take her as his wife. And so the angel appeared to to Joseph and said, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because that which is in her is from the Holy Spirit. And you'll call his name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. The night Jesus was born, angels appeared to the shepherds and declared the glory and wonder and praise and the majesty of Jesus, the God-man. Angels brought the word of God to men. But at times there could be an imbalance in the attention shown to angels and in the words given by angels. Jesus is superior to the angels. He doesn't bring the word of God. He is the word of God, revealing God to men. So the angels, even in the New Testament, drew attention to Jesus. So to go back and focus on angels, what are they telling us? They're saying Jesus is supreme, and he's supreme to us. As we'll see later, angels are merely ministering spirits. The last two verses in Hebrews 1, verses 13 and 14. To which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool of your feet? Reflecting what we read in verse 4, but going back to Psalm 110. But then we read verse 14. Are they not ministering spirits? Sent out to serve for the sake of the one, or, or for those who are to inherit salvation. That's us, believers in Christ. They're ministering spirits, nothing more. And so Jesus, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he's received is superior to theirs, is more excellent than theirs. He is God, the Son. He is equal with the Father in glory and power. He is the one, John tells us, from whom angels shielded their face as God revealed his glory to Isaiah. And the name that Jesus receives is more excellent than theirs. Again, we read of angel Gabriel. We read of the archangel Michael in Romans, or excuse me, in Revelation, where the archangel Michael and his angels go to to war against the devil and the dragon. And these names, Gabriel and Michael, they, 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 they fire our imagination as these glorious, majestic spiritual beings. But the name of Jesus is far 
more excellent, far more glorious. And when we say the name, that simply means he, because the name is the identity. Jesus is more glorious than any other being. There's discussion by some, what do we mean he inherited a name? Tom Schreiner again says, the author's not suggesting that he's become greater than the angels as the eternal son of God. His argument, anticipating chapter 2, which we'll see, is that the Son of God has become greater than the angels as the God-man. Again, achieving that perfect human righteousness and accomplishing for us salvation and all glory being given to him. Now, some ask the question, what name exactly was given to Jesus that is more excellent than the angels? That's not the right question. The reality is, whatever, if it's in in Revelation, we we, we see that... uh, we see that uh, Jesus is called the Word of God, Revelation 19. Later in the chapter, it tells us that on his robe and on his thigh are written the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But early in the same chapter, it tells us he has a name that no one knows but himself. The point is not the actual name. The point is what that name represents, his identity, his essential character, his nature, what he is. And so what he is, the name describes what he is, and it's greater, it's infinitely greater and more excellent than the angels. From eternity has always been God. But here we find in chapter 1 the exaltation of Jesus Christ, the God-man. Brothers and sisters, this is our Jesus. This is our Jesus. Are you trusting in him as your Lord and your Savior? Is he your Jesus? He is the Messiah. He's the promised one, the anointed one. He's the prophet greater than any other prophet. Because he's the final word. He doesn't just bring the word. He is the word. He is the great high priest, greater than any other priest, because he alone made purification for our sins. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. He is prophet, priest, and king as our Messiah. The author's not merely interested in helping us formulate an accurate theology or an accurate Christology, a study of Christ. He wants to thrill our hearts. He wants to lead us to a a deeper and more heart-engaged worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. He He wants to inspire us to trust him absolutely, even when bearing the cross becomes very heavy, wearying, even agonizing. So that brings us to the triumphant conclusion, no matter the cost of discipleship, no matter the weight, no matter the agony that cross may bring into your life whatever the pressures this life this world may bring upon you jesus is worth everything amen